This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 855 AM, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. Uh, we've got a big show for you tonight on Ocean Drawdown. I've got Vivian on the line to tell us all about it. Are you there, Viv? Yes, I am, Andy. Hey, I'm, how are you going? How are you? <laughs> Good, thanks. Listen, I think this is a bit of a departure for us because none of the Beyond Zero Emissions reports are on oceans, but I think everybody realises that climate change is changing the oceans, not just bleaching the coral through warm water, but the acidification, and we've talked about that in other shows, in other connections, but tonight I'm going to have an expert on... Um, solutions to that, one of which is seaweed. Awesome. So the first person sort of outlines the problem and she's a, um, a, a Canadian science journalist her name's Alana Mitchell and she was over here for the Sydney Festival and Stephen and I went to see her show and she, it was just a woman, one woman show and but she dramatised how what's happening to the ocean and she went down in a deep sea one of those deep sea exploring mm. vehicles and she was terrified you know as you would be i imagine oh right down to the dark you know and she wet her pants and she was absolutely <laughs> was horrified by the fear that struck her but then she kind of just calmed herself it just she just floated because she was fascinated by what she could see and all this life down there um, so she Amazing. did this program, this kind of drama drama show called Seasick, and in it, one of the things she shows, she had a jug of water on stage, and she put a little bit of chalk in the water, and the you know the chalk just dissolved, and she said that's what's happening to coral, with um, I think it was vinegar in the water, and 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 that's what happens to coral mm-hmm. once the water becomes acidic, and it was clear as day, you know, it just will mm-hmm. crumble and dissolve. So, Alana Mitchell's the first speaker, and then. Another one, another person I wanted to talk to was, you know, we've done plenty of shows on livestock and the land and how the land can be responsible for climate change or it can be the solution for climate change to draw down. And this guy is someone who's part of a group in James Cook University in Queensland and they um, are looking into how seaweed can affect cattle and they, they put a little bit of this, a special type of seaweed called asparagopsis taxiformis. I got, got to know this name. I've never heard of it before, but got to know. And, and they put a little bit of that into the cattle feed, um, probably powdered, this powdered seaweed. Just And they were amazed by the results. They got an 80% reduction in the methane in sheep, they tried. Oh, wow. Yeah, 80%. So that's a big saving. And so we've got millions of sheep in Australia and in the world. So mm. this is an exciting possibility, though it's not a... You know, silver bullet, it's not going to solve the whole problem. But I just thought I'd really interview an expert on that. So Rocky Denise is uh, going to talk to us about that. And um, the last person I spoke to was from Greenpeace, also in Sydney. And her name was Alex Foster Van Elst. And she's a campaigner telling us about the um, Greenpeace ship, which is down in the Weddell Sea at the moment, down off Antarctica. And Antarctica is preserved for science and for peace. You know, there's no mining allowed there, Mm. but the ocean isn't preserved. And so the Greenpeace are there doing some research to find out what's down there. Also, that deep sea kind of... They sent Javier Bardem, you know, that actor, that famous 
Spanish actor they sent him down in one of those little vehicles. And uh, <laughs> I am, I don't, I'm going to have to look that name up. Oh, yeah. have a bit. You've probably seen him. He's a very brooding, sort of handsome sort of actor. <laughs> and, and he, of course, is celebrity star quality, so he's been going around Europe telling everybody how wonderful is the Antarctic Ocean, how important it is to preserve it. And what the EU want is to create a huge ocean sanctuary there, which is going to be about 1.8 million square kilometres. Wow. Of ocean just protected, so no fishing there, and that means all the even there's people down there fishing for krill, Russian fishing vessels. You know, they're just sucking up, vacuuming up all this krill, which is essential for all the other animals to mm. live off. So they want to protect it from fishing, virtually mining, as it were. And um, one of their speakers said, "Look, you have to understand the connection between a healthy ocean." And climate draw, you know, carbon drawdown because a healthy ocean will sequester carbon. So mm. I've interviewed uh, this girl from, um, the young woman from Antarctic, about the Antarctic Ocean Sanctuary. Sounds well, great. Sounds well, like I'm going to learn a fair bit from Yeah, this I learned a lot. Show. They were all very interesting people and, uh, it was it was good that this science journalist had decided to make a drama of it. You know, people can't just take in more information. They need to sort of have it dramatised. And yeah, well, I'm probably one of these people as yeah. well, you know, and like you're saying, if they put a bit of chalk in water yeah. with vinegar and I yeah. can see it with my own eyes and yeah. it all sort of makes sense. Yeah, that's right. Well, one of Australia's most famous um, um, marine biologists is um, Charlie Verran. You know, everyone has heard about Charlie Verran's great despair over the Barrier Reef and he's discovered, I think, lots of species of coral up there and he said, Exactly the same thing. It's if the ocean is like a big jug of water, and you pop in one of those Alka-Seltzer tablets, and that's the coral that'll just yeah, dissolve. Right. So yeah. we've got to um, think about drawing down the carbon and as quick as possible to not let that become so widespread. Yep. So I hope that's listeners enjoy it. If they want to give really us any feedback, send to radio team at bzd.org. I'd love to hear their feedback. Nice. Well, we'll get that underway. Um, okay. Thanks, thanks for explaining all that. <laughs> and I'll talk to you soon, Viv. See you then. Bye-bye. Thanks. Okay, so first up, we have Alana Mitchell. Enjoy. I'll just get on with it. Um, Alana Mitchell is a Canadian journalist and playwright who's in Sydney with her play, Seasick. She's won prizes for excellence in environmental journalism. And so I went to, uh, wanted to start asking about how to communicate about climate change, which I see from her show, she realises is very hard. But she started with the ocean. So welcome, Alana. Could you just tell us um, why you started with the ocean? Um, because the ocean is, is really the... I came to understand partway through my, my research for another book that the ocean is really um, is really the big story when it comes to climate. So the way scientists think about it is that climate change uh, climate change is the original site of the cancer, if you will, but the metastasis is in the ocean. So it's one thing for the for the atmosphere to be affected, but it's something else and quite quite a bit more serious when the ocean itself is affected. So then I started looking at how 
um, what humans are doing to the ocean, how we are affecting it, and that has led me on a, a long quest. <laughs> yes, well, you, you went to some extraordinary places where most scientists, and certainly most people, would never go, and you told the story of going down to very, very deep in the ocean and overcoming your fear. Um, could you just retell a little bit of that? You know, just the experience of what happened to you from the top when you were just thinking, I want to survive this day, to the bottom when you just let go and were looking. Right. Well, I ended up going to the bottom of the ocean in a submersible um, bottom, meaning um, at th- to 3,000 feet. This was in the, off the coast of Florida, above Cuba, in the dry Tortugas. And um, with some scientists, I was in a, in a, on an expedition with some scientists, and it was just a very... Um, it was a it was an epiphany for me because I um, was pushed so past so far past human limits mm-hmm. that I somehow had to let go of all of this fear um, that I, that had been burdening me this despair I think you could say um, this deep depression that I went into I had to just you know I just had to move on mm-hmm. and that journey helped me do that. Mm-hmm. I find a lot of people. Um, are not helpful in the climate action scene because either they're in denial or they think it's too late. And I think that depression that you experienced on a personal level, I think, is perhaps on a societal level. Would you agree? It's a kind of pathology of society, well, especially in the rich societies who, who are feeling guilty. Well, that's that's. I think there's been quite a bit of good recent research on that exact thing, that just mm-hmm. the, the pathology of... Uh, of the human psychology in this era, mm-hmm. it's um, we are changing things. We are uh, we have become a geological force on the planet, just mm-hmm. the way volcanoes were and asteroids have been over time. Mm-hmm. So we're changing the very chemistry of the life support systems of the planet, and that's and you're right. There is a, there's a sense of being overwhelmed, um, and that's one of the reasons that I do this this play because I think it's a it's. It launches a conversation that we could have together about what our species can do um, about this because too often it, it gets the responsibility seems to be um, thrust upon the individual as if, you know, if only you were buying the right refrigerator, mm-hmm. if only you were doing these consumer. Uh, um, Activities and mm. recycling, and doing, I mean, of course, we all need to do that. I mean, that's that's not what I'm talking about. It's just that the primary responsibility here is not just with the individual and the individual's actions. It's this is a quintessentially a policy <laughs> framework issue, and there are people we elect in our world to uh, to accomplish policy changes mm. of this massive nature. This is a huge, huge transition of energy. That's needed uh, away from fossil fuels and toward renewables. That's the, the nub of it, and that's something that our individual actions, no matter how well intentioned, cannot fully accomplish. It, mm. it, 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 it is it requires a policy response. But I find that's also a cop out, or people use it as a cop out. They think, oh, it's the government has to do something, and even in places where they don't have elections, for example, in China, where people think the government is creating this, but still there's a kind of a swell of public pressure and public opinion, we have to do something. And I feel that they start with recycling and so on, but they never get to the next stage of creating a different system or demanding a different system. And that's one of the reasons I do this play, because I I think that there... That's why I think that it's a cultural... It's it's essentially a cultural issue. So I don't consider it a political issue at this point because you're right I mean where is the pressure mm. um, where is the the impulse to make this transition happen where 
Um, partly it's because some of the information is not easy to get at yeah. about the state of the planet. Yeah. Partly it's because we feel overwhelmed, partly because we feel guilty. All of those those emotions that I talk about in my play, which mm-hmm. tend to be paralytic, they tend to nail us to the floor. How do we you know, how do we step over the mountain? Mm-hmm. And so for me that's where the cultural impulse is, but it but it ultimately will will require a policy decision. Yeah. Yeah. Well, policies I mean, will we'll pressure them to make different policies. Politicians but are our employees. Yes. You know, yeah. As voters we can we can we can um, Guide them. Yeah. I want to come back to the role of communication because you are a journalist and you, you've said to us here tonight you're not a scientist, so you're just fascinated by everything and you meet all these top people. So I think with a fresh eye, you know, and with an eye to translating it for people who've never seen those things or read that or done that boring, long and arduous work that a lot of scientists do have to do. But I listen to a, a Canadian podcast called Radio EcoShock and often there are scientists on that and I listen to that and they're very the person who interviews them is very you know across all the material it seems to me he, he study what they've written but it's very specific and it's not when it comes to what are the solutions what's the big picture it's as if they're like oh well it's not that I haven't thought about it but I just I'm not qualified to mm-hmm. give an opinion on something bigger than my little specific limited research area and I want to know your feeling you know you've won prizes for your environmental journalism what's the difference between just being a well-informed scientist and someone who can motivate people and tell a story as a story like you said with some sort of uh, redemption at the end or some sort of restoration of order which is what we're hoping for well it's not really I'm not sure it's the job of scientists to do that mm. um, it's certainly not the job of all scientists to do that. Mm. I mean, they have, they have a, a very specific um, mandate, which is to find stuff out. Mm-hmm. And you're right, they do tend to say, you know, I'm not going to be talking about mm. big solutions mm. because, you know, unless that is the field that they're in, they're not going to be able to do that. And in fact, they get penalized by their scientific community if they do step out of, out of line. So, I mean, I think there's a case to be made for... Um, uh, I think there's a case to be made for journalists, mm. you know, who are able to translate some of that. Mm. Um, it's quite difficult to do, and it's it's a, it's a little bit countercultural. Mm. Um, I know some countries where scientists are trained to be communicators as well. So they mm. they have people who, who have PhDs in say marine biology, biology plus communications, mm. and I think that's really smart because then that 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 their mandate becomes. Communicating, mm. that's still not the the normal thing. No. Um, but it would seem to me that that might be really helpful to have. And there are a few individuals who just are like Tim Flannery is a, is mm. a, is a fantastic communicator. Mm. So, um, and there are others who are scientists who are able to do that. But it's it's a fairly uncommon skill among scientists. Yes, I've noticed that we have a few in Australia journalists that are trained in science and who are following these themes. But I think you also mentioned that the real taboo for journalists is to be personal. Right. But in your play here that you've created out of your own research, you, you make it very personal. Do you think that's the thing that is needed, to step over the line and say, look, you know... To, to be personal, you mean? Yeah. Um, in, in my play, it's I'm a character in my play mm. um, because it's a one-woman play um, and it's a non-fiction play. But... Um, I've, I think that there's a sometimes uh, what I think is that humans respond to narrative. Mm. They respond to art. They respond to narrative. And so 
I think in order to make some of that information accessible to people, sometimes you have to put it in a narrative form, a narrative nonfiction form. And so that's what I'm doing in this play. It's just that I happen to be the character who's helping to guide people through this narrative nonfiction landscape or seascape. Um, that just that's just a, a technique that I decided to use in order to communicate. And it's the same thing. It's similar to what I do in my book called Seasick, which is. Oh, you know, I am in that book in the first person, and that's simply a, it's just a writer's technique to mm. try to make the information a little bit um, more accessible. Yeah. We have a, a famous uh, coral scientist here called Charlie Veron, yeah. and, uh, you know, he has started to publish articles. He's, he's, he's a very authentic person. He's not just dry and um, factual. He, he also says how it affects him. And um, you, you talked about a spawning event of coral, and you witnessed that. And I've never heard anyone describe it really. And, and as you said, we still don't exactly know why or, or when exactly or how they communicate that it's going to happen. Could you describe that? Because I think to me, part of the problem of climate change, it seems to be a new problem. And a lot, it's just at the wrong time in human history when we're all flocking to live in big cities, we've lost touch with nature. And, and none of us would ever have seen a deep sea event like that. But, you know, even being in touch with the stars or with the mountains or the forests, which previously generations of humans all pretty much all were in touch with even farm animals you know we're, we're disconnected and so what you described was like a wonder of the world could you just describe it for the radio audience uh, well I can't redo my play <laughs> I'm, I'm afraid but really what I was talking about was a coral spawning in Panama so it's in the Caribbean Ocean and it's a uh, Caribbean Sea and it's it's just it's just this magical magical moment when all the corals know that this is the precise moment of all of the of all of the moments in a year. This is the precise moment when they all have to have sex at the same time, mm-hmm. and so and, and so it's just this, this extraordinary. Um, uh, it's you, you literally get into the water and you can feel the sexual energy of the corals coursing through your body. It's mm-hmm. it's quite extreme. It's quite extraordinary, and the whole reef can feel this. And so the reef is all responding. Uh, all creatures, all the creatures on the reef are responding to that. And then of course it happens, and it's all quite. Um, uh, Mm, well, lusty. <laughs> really, it's quite fun, and and then you know it's all over for a whole year, and so these so these little baby corals are then you know created, and they're trying to find a place to attach within the ocean, and that's one of the other issues. Is that they they have trouble finding a clean place to attach to um, because there's so much algal overgrowth in mm. some of the in some of the warmer parts of the ocean. Um, yeah. Okay. So, that, that, so that's one part. So the, the corals is one part of the ocean. What other aspects of ocean knowledge do you think we're missing? Partly because we can't go there, but also partly because people aren't telling us about it, I think. Well, the thing that I, 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 I really focus on in my play... Um, is that humans are changing the chemistry of the ocean. So it's, we're making it warmer, we're making it, uh, we're helping parts of it to lose its dissolved oxygen, and we are changing the pH of the, of the global ocean. So scientists talk about that as if the ocean is getting warm, breathless, and sour. Those are the three things. And each one is, is terrible on its own, but together it's a real, a really killing mix. Mm-hmm. So, and then each of those is related in some way to carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. So, the, the, the larger point that I 
that, that science, scientists have explained to me and that I'm trying to get across in the play is that it's really quite hard to change those basic chemical parameters of a vast um, you know, a vast body like our global ocean and yet we've done that so this is not trivial stuff it's not stuff that is everyday we've pushed the chemistry of the ocean to places it hasn't been in for tens of millions of years so the ocean hasn't been this acidic for 55 million years it's, it's a very, very unusual time in the planet's history it's not, this is not business as usual and, and that is the thing that sometimes I feel gets lost in, in the discussion it's just what, a, what an extraordinary um, and very difficult thing it is that we, we have done Yeah, and I think you made it visual by explaining that one of the scientists was trying to explain to the British Parliament I think she put, dissolved a bit of chalk into a jug of vinegar and, and so the audience uh, were list, watching you do that um, on stage you dramatised that so is that ocean wide that the pH yeah. is changing like that yeah. well Charlie Verron said something about similar he said when the, cor- the, the main presenting problem now is the corals are bleaching but the next thing is the corals will dissolve and he said the same thing with the acid ocean he said it'll be like a giant antacid tablet in water right. and so you've yeah. Come at it both ways. Yeah. That's exactly right. So that that's one of the big issues with, with corals is that yeah. they they will they're going to have a harder time making their reefs because their reefs are made of calcium carbonate and that mm-hmm. is tougher to make in a, in a more acidic ocean. And we've been doing this year quite a few prog- programs about biodiversity and how climate change is affecting different animals as well as all the other um, creatures. And one of the scientists told me about keystone species and he was talking about bats being keystone species. They pollinate and you take the bats out of the equation, all sorts of other things collapse. You mentioned plankton in the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you just tell us how that's a keystone species? And there are lots of different species of, of plankton, so mm-hmm. it, it, uh, scientists oh. wouldn't consider it a keystone yeah. species no. because we're talking about you know oh. thousands. Yeah. But it's it's what plankton are at the base of the of the marine food web but they're also at the top of the biogeochemical cycle in the ocean so they're critical not only because they they help feed everything else in the ocean and therefore other creatures like us who many of whom depend on ocean but they're also part of the way the ocean um, processes chemicals in order to make them available for for humans they're also part of the reason they're also part of the way that the, the ocean breathes if you will, so they um, phytoplankton absorb carbon dioxide gas and emit uh, oxygen. So they're they're it's called primary production, and so and so they are a key to the the life support systems on our planet. And so they're being affected. And you know, if we if we should ever lose them, it's it's really <laughs> yeah, it's not a good it's 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 a dire story. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Elena's got to do another show fairly soon, so thanks very much. We've been speaking to a journalist from. Canada called Alana Mitchell. She's also a famous writer, I think, now, and she's a playwright, having put on sh- on stage today a, a show called C6. So thanks, Alana. And tell the listeners the names of your books. Oh, I just my, my fifth book is just about to come out next week. Um, it's called The Spinning Magnet, and it's about the Earth's um, magnetic field. But before that, there were uh, this this play is based on a book called, I wrote called Seasick, which was launched ten years ago in Australia, in fact, oh. at the Brisbane Writers' Festival. Um, and I also have a book called Dancing at the Dead Sea, and I have a book called Malignant Metaphor, which is about the cultural meaning of cancer. And I have a book about um, the find of 
the one of the lost ships of Sir John Franklin up in the Arctic. Yes. So, okay. all right. So the name is Alana Mitchell. Thank you very much. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great and really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. Tonight we're talking about seaweed. Professor Rocky Denise is at James Cook University in Townsville. He's Professor of Aquaculture at Macro, and they research macroalgae, biofuels, bioproducts, bioremediation, and carbon capture. So welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show, Rocky. Thanks. Pleasure to be here. Our focus is on who's taking climate action in the community. And today I'd like to start with this headline. It said, Feeding cows seaweed could slash global greenhouse gas emissions. Now, I couldn't pass this headline by. Is that exaggerated? (laughs) I think the media does like to push the boundaries. (laughs) (laughs) So so I won't say exaggerated, but seaweed as a feed supplement, particular sorts of seaweed as a feed supplement, have been uncovered to have a profound effect on the production of methane from ruminant animals, so things like cows, sheep and goats. Well, which species of seaweed can reduce the amount of methane that cattle produce? It's a a couple of species of a genus called asparagopsis, and it's a a red seaweed that people would be quite familiar with if they were showing it. So it, it occurs around Australia and gets washed up on beaches and grows prolifically, but it has a very rich suite of natural products inside the seaweed. And those natural products, in a largely serendipitous way, have been discovered to interfere or reduce the production of methane in the rumen of, of ruminants, so in their stomachs. And they produce less methane through burping mostly when it's included in their diet. What was that serendipitous process? As a collective group between the CSIRO, James Cook University and Meat and Livestock Australia, we were were interested in seeing if the inclusion of seaweed, all sorts of seaweed, so we collected a lot of different sorts of seaweed, in animal diets would affect methane production because it's been looked at all around the world because seaweeds have a unique suite of natural products, a unique suite of chemicals in them that's very different from terrestrial plants and and natural products in general have been hypothesized or thought to play a role in in managing methane production in the room and so we just did a test where we tested 20 different sorts of seaweed just to get a feel for the the impact that they might have and this was done in an artificial room and so in a bottle and there was there were a couple of species that stood out but there was one that stood out in particular and this was asparagopsis the the red seaweed, and it reduced methane production by more than 90%. So it was a a sort of shining beacon in terms of something to investigate in more detail. Well, I was very surprised to read about that amount of methane reduction you achieved. How would you measure it in uh, real livestock if you fed it to them? Oh, we've done that. So you actually put animals in a chamber, and as the animals respire and breathe and and, and actually do all of their bodily functions, you measure all of those. 
So you can put an animal in the chamber and measure how much methane it produces through a day, and you can change its feed and have animals on different feeds, and then measure if you're reducing methane production by those particular animals. And the first step is to do it in an artificial rumen. So you just use a bottle which contains the microflora or the bacteria that are in the rumen of, of a cow, and you add some straw or some hay or whatever they might eat, and then you can add any sort of additive. You can add some seaweed in there or you can add some a native Australian plant. You, know, you could add a chemical. And you can look at the production of methane firstly in that little bottle with the microbial community from the cow. But then you can actually start to feed a sheep or a cow and you can measure in the chamber whether or not they're producing methane and how much methane they do produce. When I... Uh covered this story once before a few months back someone said to me or a few people said to me look this kind of seaweed food is not applicable to the majority of livestock which are out on wild ranges you know they they are not fed hand fed at all they're just out on pastures in the north part of Queensland or western part of Queensland and there's no way that this food additive could improve their methane production and they're the majority of livestock we've got so is this only applicable to livestock that are on a like a feedlot or in a controlled situation? Well, I think initially you'd target the feedlot or a controlled situation because it's the easiest way to provide a supplement to an animal. So, yeah, you start with the simplest approach, and the simplest approach is, is definitely in a feedlot or, or a feeding situation. So, for example, with a dairy animal, they're, they're in a dairy every day and they, they eat a supplement already. Or, or in a feedlot where they're, they're eating a supplement the whole time. So those are situations where you can just pick, you know, although the expression's a bit, uh, a bit trite, the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, and start with that. Mm. But there, there are ways that you can target feeding supplements to animals in broad-range agriculture, and, and people do that with lick blocks or all sorts of different um, approaches because animals are, are fed supplements in that broad range. But you target the easiest part of the process first and you build from there. I, don't, I think it, it's a little bit um, negative, perhaps, to, to start to look for a silver bullet when you know, you've actually got a pretty good outcome that can affect a large number of animals in the first instance. Yes, well, it would be wonderful for the climate to reduce some of that livestock emission, wouldn't it? And that's the main one is seemingly from um, cows. So um, the next thing is about the seaweed itself. I'm trying to imagine how you would have enough seaweed, how you'd harvest enough. You couldn't be uh, raiding the wild seaweed along the coast, could you? I, I thought that we needed all of that to sequester carbon just as it is. Well, I think we need it for more than just sequestering carbon. We should just leave it as it is. And, you know, it's a very important ecosystem that provides, yeah. you know, all, all sorts of benefits to the environment. So you would, farm, you would farm asparagopsis. So you would develop a farming system. And fortuitously, it's a seaweed that grows quickly. Um, it can be farmed, and there are very small farms in France and Ireland um, for different reasons, not for the mitigation of, of methane. And so yeah, the next step in the process, now that we understand that the seaweed can reduce the production of methane and ruminants, is to start to look at the supply chain and how you develop that. Well, if you had some funding, I wonder if there is any um, interest in this for funding large-scale asparagopsis farms. Uh, where would you... Put them. Uh, luckily, there is, there is a tropical species of asparagopsis and there's a temperate species of asparagopsis. And so you can grow it in the tropics or in the temperate zones. 
and they're a little bit different, but they, they fundamentally do the same thing. Um, and, and they occur around the world. So these two species of asparagopsis are global in their distribution. Uh, essentially, they could be farmed anywhere that you can farm seaweed. So you know, from, from, from Tasmania north to the equator and from the equator north to northern China. Wow. All right. Well, I've just been reading Tim Flannery's book, and we're going to talk to him later, um, Sunlight and Seaweed, and he talks about tethering these large aquaculture with seaweed growing down ropes out in the international waters, out in the deep oceans, tethering them to deep reefs. Apparently you can tether some or you can just have them floating. It sounds like this sort of seaweed, this species, would, would adapt itself to that sort of water if there was nutrient, which he, his, in his book he says it would be piped up from the deep ocean. The nutrient in the deep ocean water would be piped up to the top and the seaweed would just flourish on that. Can you, can you see that application happening? No, I can't see that application happening. I think it, you know that's more for the, the sorts of things Tim is talking about is more are more for kelps and, and big brown seaweeds that grow in those sorts of environments. You know, the, the asparagopsis really is a, is something you'd grow in a, a a sort of coastal intensive coastal environment. So you know, different all different seaweeds there's a, a very broad biodiversity grow in different ways and have different requirements. And so the, the, you know, the vision Tim has is quite different. He has this vision of big brown seaweeds floating in the open ocean. And you know, these are fast-growing, high-turnover species of red seaweeds that, that have a different requirement and, and wouldn't quite work in that way. So yeah, perhaps they're complementary more than uh, being able to be done together. Well, I think you've covered that fairly well. Just to finish with, are there any commercial interests going to take up your idea and, and run with it? The, um, the whole process is being pursued quite quite strongly from a, a range of different interested parties, and, and that's been coordinated. The CSIRO are doing a fantastic job coordinating that approach. And so, yes, I think this is the simple answer. Yeah, okay, we'll hear more about that when it starts to happen. Right, what, are, what are some of the other things that seaweed can do for us in terms of carbon capture and bioremediation? Oh, I think bioremediation is a really... Strong use, and, and you know, we have a, all of our work with our industry partner NBD Energy focuses around cleaning wastewater and capturing nutrients from industries and carbon fortuitously at the same time, and delivering clean water. So you, you do two things: you take water that has a high level of, of nutrients, you pass that through seaweed culture. The seaweed takes up the nitrogen and phosphorus and provides you with useful biomass that can be repurposed. And the end result is valuable biomass and clean water for the environment. So bioremediation and seaweed go very, very well together. When you say biomass, does that mean like biofuel? Well, biomass is just you know, the, the seaweed itself, so the, the physical nature of the seaweed. So you can use that, that seaweed, you know, and, and biomass is just another term for that seaweed, for a range of different purposes. Fuel is probably not a very clever one, to be perfectly honest, not, not in my opinion. You know, there are lots of very valuable uses for seaweed. Right. And you know, as the world transitions to you know, electrical transport and you know, fuel is probably less of a, you know, a pressing need, while protein and food you know, is probably a more pressing need 
in terms of what what the world needs today. And seaweeds are very healthy. They're good for you. They're nutritious. And so in that area, eating seaweed or making edible products from seaweed, you you have a real benefit. Can I just ask you a question as a teacher at a university? Do you have trouble with students, say in their 20s, giving them the idea how quickly this needs to happen? You talked about electric vehicles. We're going to have to have renewable energy on our electricity system. We're going to need a lot of changes in their lifetime, like in the next 20, 30 years. Do they feel daunted by this task or are they? Are you inspiring them to run with it? No, I think it's the other way around. I think they're inspiring me. Uh-huh. So, so they're, they're, you know, I think um, the, the youth of today or the young people of today understand change better than we do. They manage it well and, and they're inspirational because they want to see uh, you know, a better world and a different world than we might be producing for them. Can you tell me some of the what the PhD students or some of the what are some of the lines of research that are people are taking in terms of climate change? Look, climate change is is broadly is, is a very broad subject. So, but in terms of the seaweed and climate change, yeah. you know, people are looking at new growth systems, faster growing species, the genetics, the, the final end products, and um, how to capture the most value and get multiple products from one particular seaweed. So, you know, seaweeds are really diverse in their nature so you can take out some carbohydrates you can find some some valuable natural products and you might be left with a really protein rich end product that you can use as an animal feed so yeah, PhD students are the, the inspiration behind changing the world and, 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 and they do very blue sky different research and it's actually a, it's a very rewarding future to be part of to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Alright, well look, we, we, I think a lot of people were interested in this because of that Catalyst program which showed, you know, seaweed culture is not a new thing for food, it's been widely um, done in Asia and China, but this new method of using it in deep oceans where the nutrient isn't, um, maybe for, for sequ- uh, carbon sequestration and cleaning the water. Tim Flurry says it also cleans the water of, kind of deacidifies the water. Well, um, I think the, the nice thing about seaweed is it's just being discovered by Western society. Yes. And, and so, you know, I think we'll see a whole range of new and interesting uses and, and applications of seaweed because, you know, we've spent a lot of time l- looking at uh, the terrestrial environment and understanding it. And, you know, it, it's, it's, we're now starting to understand that the marine environment plays a really big role in our climate and, and all of the things that we do. You know, and seaweed's an important part of that. And so, as we develop more understanding, we find more and more applications and uses and, and we understand the value of that whole process you know, in much more detail. So I think it's a very exciting space and I think we'll see a lot of new ideas and a lot of new changes come into it. What, what do you see as a th- um, threat to seaweed of climate change? I mean, do seaweed species have to migrate to cooler areas if the waters are warming? Yes, definitely. And we, we, we see now in Australia a very strong shift down the east coast of Australia in particular and, and, and some part down the west coast as warm as the warmer water goes further and further south through the summer months the distribution of, of seaweeds and particularly the large kelps is changing in response to that so it's been lost in some areas and moving south Alright, well thank you very much We've been talking to Professor Rocky Denise and I think that you listeners might have more, even more questions to ask him but I've asked him everything I can think of at the moment and I think it's quite exciting what you're doing with the livestock feed and I hope that there's a very large application of that Thank you very much for talking to us No, thanks Vivian It's, it's great to have a conversation with you Bye-bye See ya
This is James Henry here, and you're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, and digital streaming on 3cr.org.au. Last ocean story tonight takes us to the Antarctic. Right now, a Greenpeace ship is in the Weddell Sea doing deep sea scientific research. And I'm at Greenpeace in Sydney where their Antarctic campaigner, Alex Foster Van Elst, will tell us why. So, hello, Alex. Apart from the whales, what else is down there in Antarctic waters and why are your people researching there? Well, there's a huge amount of wildlife and a great diversity of marine life in Antarctic oceans. And that's something which we are actually exploring down there with our ship. So we have a submarine on the ship at the moment which is diving into Antarctic Ocean areas which humans have never been to before and exploring more about the life there to, to see what there is. So we've done a few dives already and we're taking Antarctic scientists down with us and Javier Bardem, the Hollywood actor, has also been going down there in the submarine. We've been seeing um, many different types of corals. We're seeing sea stars, basket stars, feather stars and really a huge variety of life and a lot of colour down there too. There's also a huge amount of wildlife, obviously, in the Antarctic Ocean, the creatures which people will be more familiar with, like penguins, whales, seals, and then the tiny little krill, which is the cornerstone of, of all of it, which all Antarctic um, marine life relies on. Okay. So this is going to be a revelation when the photos and videos and Javier Badem, I imagine, making some sort of big media splash about it. But... Overarching this, you want to protect this area. Can you explain a bit about that? You know, there's a big push to create a, a new marine park there. Absolutely. So Greenpeace is calling to have an Antarctic Ocean Sanctuary in that area. So we'd be looking at 1.8 million square kilometres protected, and that would be out of touch from any destructive human activities. The proposal has actually been put forward by the EU to the Antarctic Ocean Commission, which is an international body, but it's based here in Australia, down in our very own Hobart. And Greenpeace is supporting that proposal. And that's part of the scientific work which we're, we're doing. We're working um, with Germany, who prepared the report, and the EU, who um, submitted it, mm -hmm. to strengthen the proposal and show that there's this huge amount of diversity there and that area needs to be off limits from destructive industries, and in particular the krill fishing industry, which is looking to expand. If we had this Antarctic Ocean Sanctuary designated, it would mean that the penguins and the whales and all the creatures living there wouldn't be under threat from the krill fishing industry which is taking food which is meant for them essentially yeah. yeah well look Australians are very proud of the Antarctic Treaty which was made about 30 years ago especially Bob Hawke featured in that and it wasn't wasn't a great number of people involved and they got this treaty which has now protected Antarctica the mainland of Antarctica from mining and it's only for peaceful and scientific purposes so we have something to be proud of but recently Australians are going through a terrible, I think, guilt about our carbon footprint and our export of coal and gas and we're, you know, we need something to be proud of and I wonder if this, getting behind this campaign would be a reason to be proud, you know, to, it's the EU who has proposed it but it's in our backyard. What, do you, what would you say to Australian people about why we should be feeling very protective of this area? 
Yeah, I agree. I think Australians have a lot to feel proud of with the history with Antarctica and the Antarctic area as a whole. And the win which was made decades ago now of having Antarctica protected is, is arguably one of the biggest environmental successes in history. And the fact that Australia was really involved in that is, is definitely something to be hugely proud of. Um, that link which Australia has with the Antarctic is something which is definitely still there. You know, we see down in, in Hobart and down in Tassie mm-hmm. there um, a lot of industries involved in the Antarctic and the Australian Antarctic Division based down there in, in Hobart. And Australia is very supportive in general of Antarctic Ocean sanctuaries and looking after this area. So I think what we can do as Australian people is just make sure that um, the government knows that we support having Australian um, Antarctic Ocean sanctuaries and that um, the, the delegates on the Antarctic Ocean Commission from Australia know that they feel supported to say that we should have these areas protected and know that the Australian people are really behind that because in general there's some great work done by the Australian Antarctic mm-hmm. um, Division and the more we can do to support them and show them that we all think this is a good thing then the better. Well how would it be policed? It's a huge ocean area right around Antarctica the sea, Weddell Sea and I know the Ross Sea has just recently been put under marine protection but how would it be policed? So that is ultimately for the Antarctic Ocean Commission. It's under their uh, responsibility to work that out. Mm -hmm. So the Antarctic Ocean Commission, um, they are tasked with making sure that the Antarctic Ocean waters are protected adequately. A key part of that is designating Antarctic Ocean sanctuaries, which is what we're calling for here from Greenpeace. And another part of that is ensuring that once these sanctuaries are designated and and put into place, that that's actually respected and looked after. So it's really down to the Antarctic Ocean Commission to make sure um, that that is monitored That can be done with things like technology and seeing where ships are if they're going into the area which is a sanctuary and looking at and saying, hang on, why are you there? What are you doing there? Um, There's also potentially a part for other industries to play of monitoring each other and holding each other to account Mm -hmm. to make sure that those areas are are protected as well. Okay. Well, let's get back to the krill. I think a previous speaker on this program talked about these massive ships just hoovering up up giant amounts of creoles. It's the industrial scale of it that's a big worry. And so the krill are threatened by that. The oceans are also becoming more acidic, as we've heard in our first speaker tonight. And one of your campaigners who is on the Greenpeace ship, Frida Bengtson, she made a comment which I thought was interesting from our program's point of view, because we're interested mostly in climate change. We know the Antarctic Ocean is responsible. It's a real driver of the climate. But she said Said, look, it's important for all of us, even if we don't eat fish, that the ocean health is restored. So a marine protected area would perhaps restore the health of the ocean, but how would that affect climate change? 
So ocean health is hugely important for our planet. And to start with, most of our planet is covered by ocean. We are the blue planet. And we know that the ocean provides many benefits for life on Earth. One of them being providing sustenance and livelihood for millions of people around the world. Um, another being, obviously, for protecting the diversity and the animals which live in the ocean. And a hugely important one is mitigating the effects of climate change. So scientists are just beginning to understand now the um, extent to which the oceans have actually been protecting us from how much climate change has been affecting the planet. So it absorbs a lot of the heat which has been <laughs> emitting into the, into the atmosphere. It's been absorbing a lot of carbon dioxide and what is worrying is that these, the heat and the carbon dioxide which is absorbing, the ocean acidification which results from that is changing a lot in the ocean. So that's a problem for the ocean and it's also a problem for us because if the oceans aren't at um, the healthiest that they can be, they can't carry on to do those three key things we needed to do, which is mitigate the effects of climate change, provide sustenance and livelihood for human beings around the world, and be a home for marine life. So scientists have come together and have said that what we need is 30% of our oceans to be protected off-limit areas if we want our oceans to keep um, protecting us in this way. And what we're calling for is that by 2030, we have this 30% of ocean protection. Mm -hmm. So we're starting in the Antarctic um, and using that as really the catalyst mm -hmm. and the push mm -hmm. to get this process underway and to have this ocean protection, which we need. Um, healthy oceans is a, one of our best defenses against the effects of climate change. So if we can be um, stopping the burning of fossil fuels stopping deforestation and improving the health of our oceans will be on a really good way to, to solving this problem. Mm. Massive projects, but in our, in our lifetime we'll see it. Um, at the Bonn Climate Conference, however, just before Christmas, Australia was among the very lowest performing countries and someone said our climate inaction plus the fact that we are the top coal and gas exporters is an anchor dragging down the global project uh, progress and limiting to limit climate disruption. I think we need to redeem ourselves. And um, would you like to tell people about the campaign, you know, that Australians who are feeling this weight of our inaction on the land, what can we do to campaign for preserving the ocean? Yeah, I'd agree. It's extremely disappointing how Australia presents itself on the world stage when it comes to climate change. We see leaders all around the world um, coming to the table and making sure that their countries are really taking action. And there's a lot which Australia can do as the world's largest coal exporter. Mm. Um, and having so much abundance of wind and solar, the opportunities for renewable en energy in this country are just huge. And it's really disappointing to see that that's, that's not embraced further. Um, my uh, advice <laughs> to people out there, what they can do on, on these issues, and really whether it's to do with, um, you know, whether you're worried about a new coal mine being built or whether you're worried about um, having more ocean sanctuaries or whether you're worried about deforestation or, 
any number of the environmental issues that we have here is to make your voice heard. Governments around the world are responsible for making sure that this planet is healthy for all of us. And the Australian government is responsible for making sure that this country is healthy um, for Australians. So we need to make sure that they are feeling the pressure and we need to make sure that they know that it's their responsibility to fix these things. So whether it's signing a petition, whether it's joining um, a local group, whether it's um, staying up to date with, um, with news and making sure that that's shared amongst your family or friends and getting people on board, writing a letter to an MP, going to a rally. There are so many things which people can do to put pressure on the government to make sure that they know we're worried about this and we know it's their responsibility and they need to do something about it. Well, I think the thing about the ocean is that it's out of sight. We just see the surface of it and we don't see this wonderland underneath, especially the barrier reef. Most of us don't know it's there. We don't know all about the krill. We don't know because we can't see it. So your films and videos are doing that. You've got Javier Bardem going down there with his very glamorous beard in a little submarine and that'll be on TV, I suppose, when the three months of the the ship being down there is over but I've noticed you've also got some other cute things like pop-up penguins in Buenos Aires in London and these quite big sized penguins, pretend penguins and they're advertising this ocean sanctuary now the ocean sanctuary isn't a common no we don't know about it yet, people don't know so is there something that you're getting like a groundswell of people involved in doing that, making these penguins pop up everywhere so that people think oh what's that penguin there for, oh it's about an Ocean sanctuary. That's a good idea. Greenpeace or something like that. Are you are you involving people to do that? Yeah, absolutely. So as I was saying before, the key thing people can do is show governments that they care about these issues and that's a huge part of this campaign. What we're doing is communicating the need for this Antarctic Ocean Sanctuary and ocean health in general and doing that in a fun way which, which brings people closer to the ocean. As you said, not everyone gets to go down in a submarine with Javier Bardem and see the floor of the Antarctic Ocean. So we're capturing a lot of that footage and bringing that back to people. So if you're interested in seeing more on that, on our Greenpeace social media channels, on our Greenpeace Australia Pacific Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, Mm. we're sharing a lot of the content from that. So that's um, footage of the ocean underneath the ice. We've got beautiful images and videos coming out of penguin colonies, which we're visiting. And we've got a lot more planned in the next few months as well, which we'll be sharing with everyone. And getting people around the world on board with this is hugely, hugely important. And we're doing really well so far. We've got over half a million people who've signed our petition for Mm. Antarctic Ocean Sanctuary. Mm. And I think that really helps to show the Antarctic Ocean Commission and the governments who are on that commission that people really do care about this, about this area which they've never been to before. Mm. They're they're smart and they understand that it needs protection Mm. and that putting your name to that can and will make difference, Mm. a real difference in our world and for the creatures and human beings who live Mm. in it. Well, the ship's away for three months, and I think one of the people on the, on board said she hoped when they came back after three months, this would have become a worldwide movement. So maybe the half million signatures will be a million. And but these things always take a big effort to get the momentum going, and it is a really big project. Um, just to finish, would you like to tell us um, 
why you got how you got involved and especially with ocean work how, how this affects you and just invite people to join the campaign sure so um, I've been interested in environmental issues for much of my life and been aware of many of the problems which are, are affecting our planet um, at Greenpeace, we work on a variety of issues. A central thing we work on, particularly here in Greenpeace Australia Pacific, is climate change because of the big role that Australia plays in that and, and the positive role it, it could play. Uh, so if I'm honest, um, tackling climate change was probably what brought me into Greenpeace. Um, and the more I learned about um, the need for ocean protection and the more I learned about the crucial role that the, the ocean plays in Mediterranean, the effects of climate change mm -hmm. and, and the need for protecting it, that's what really drew me into it. And actually that point you were making about how how you engage people on this issue, which for many is quite out of sight and, and out of mind. Mm. Um, you know, in Australia, we have this great beach culture, which a lot of people get to experience, mm. but not, not all over the country and not in every country in the world. So mm. how can we bring people closer to the ocean and how can we show people this world which needs protecting from the negative effects of climate change is something which I'm really passionate about and um, feel very privileged to, to work on. Yeah. Well, as our first speaker tonight said, her play is called Seasick and she's worried about we're changing the chemistry of the ocean. So these things are for this generation really to solve, otherwise it'll be too late. So please, listeners, look up the Greenpeace website and their Facebook and you'll see some of the video of this and in three weeks three months time i think you'll start hearing a lot more about the uh, campaign to create an ocean sanctuary in the southern antarctic ocean the weddell sea is it just the weddell sea that you're aiming for or something bigger that's the start <laughs> okay Welcome back. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. A uh, big thanks to our guests, Alana Mitchell, Rocky Denise and Alex Foster. And of course, the radio team, Roger and of course, Vivian Langford for our wonderful interviews. And obviously, I can only speak for myself, but she's definitely giving me an education over the last couple of years uh stay tuned and you'll hear more interviews from vivian in the save albert park time slot while they take a break and yeah thanks for joining us and good night beyond zero emissions is a not-for-profit research and education organization we design blueprints for a zero emissions economy as climate change action becomes an emergency, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions exports and industry, zero emissions transport, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions land use. Podcasts of our shows contain a who's who of community action and climate solutions. They're all available on the web at bze.org.au. We'd love your ideas for this show, so contact us at radioteam at bze.org.au. Dot .au or even write to us 
care of Radio 3CR, 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, Victoria. You can make that attention, BZE Radio.